your lawyer said, Justin, you're going to prison. And I remember looking out into Alcatraz from the San Francisco office thinking, this is not good. I'm innocent. I've done nothing wrong. I'm being swept into this. Adversity could be not getting into your desired school. And his parents, they wanted to fix that, and they had the means to fix it. And who are the victims in this university scam? That was Justin Paperni that you were listening to just then. He is co-founder of White Collar Advice. And all I can say is I hope you don't ever meet him professionally. I hope you don't ever need to meet him professionally. Uh, But if you ever get in trouble, if you are ever looking at an ADA across the table or a U.S. assistant uh, attorney across the table, and you have gotten crossed up and made some bad decisions, this is a guy you need to talk to. And he knows it because he's smart. He knows it because he's studied. And he knows it because he has walked on the other side and made some bad decisions himself that he believes cost him both money and time in the prison system. Uh, And right now, we're in the middle of a really high-profile situation with this college scandal that's gone on, and I thought there was no better time to talk to somebody that, in my opinion, is one of the foremost, if not the foremost, expert about what people need to do when they're facing prison, when they're facing prison time, when they're facing indictment, when the writing is on the wall and people want to pretend it isn't. So that's why I've asked him to come here today. So we're going to get to talking to him in about a minute. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude. Stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans in- engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav bros. Good job. Justin. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I want people to know your background and who you are. You're a felon and an ex-con. Yes. You got sentenced to the federal penitentiary for white-collar crime, and it had to do with conspiracy to commit fraud with regard to securities, correct? I was a stockbroker at Bear Stearns, then UBS, and several years into my career, despite all the success I had had, I found myself making some bad decisions on behalf of a client. As a result of those poor choices, I was inevitably sentenced to 18 months in federal prison. I don't want to get into the specifics of your crime because, frankly, people don't care. What they do care about is you got caught, and now you're quick to say that you were wrong. You were guilty, correct? Indeed. One of my biggest regrets is not accepting responsibility sooner 
And as a result of my not accepting responsibility sooner, I made it harder on victims, those that love and support me. So that was my biggest regret amongst a long list of regrets. We're going to talk about these as we go on. And let me just do some shameless plugs here because I have a lot of respect for Justin. He has written about this extensively. He has talked about it extensively on the Internet, doing different talks. One of his books is Ethics in Motion. The other is Lessons from Prison. And we're going to talk about those things. Maybe you're in this situation. Maybe you're not. Maybe you have a family member that is. But right now, as I was saying, we're in the middle of a situation where people that don't often find themselves faced with indictment and possible prison time are there right now because we've had 50 people right now indicted by the federal government for scamming universities, bribery, money laundering, an assortment of crimes. And I think some of them are really in denial. And when you first got charged... You think that you were in the same situation, that you were in denial at the same time, correct? When I learned that I was in trouble, I said, this is not a big deal. They're going to see that I didn't have bad intent, that I was clearly swept into this. And they're going to see that I'm a student athlete from USC, and I had hundreds of clients who loved me, and I never had a problem before. So as a result of that flawed thinking and spinning lies to lawyers, then later lying to the FBI because I did not want them to perceive me as a criminal— I had lied and made matters measurably worse. So denial took years off of my life and led to a longer prison sentence. I want to break that down a little bit. So you got charged, and at the time, had you admitted to yourself that you had done wrong, or were you deluding yourself? I was deluding myself. In fact, I've trained new agents at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and when the FBI agent that arrested me introduced me to the agents, he said before I spoke, had Justin been honest with us, when we interviewed him, we would not have pursued prosecution. Think about how different my life is as a result of my unwillingness to accept responsibility in front of two FBI agents because of shame, denial, living like the ostrich with my head buried. So yes, my life is forever changed because I couldn't step up and say, I made some bad decisions and I regret them. So he said if you had been honest, they wouldn't have prosecuted you? Think about that. I talk a lot about post-defense conduct in this Varsity Blues college cheating case. We've got to pay attention to post-defense conduct, what defendants are doing between indictment and a potential trial or or sentencing hearing. It is a big deal, the record they need to begin to create as a law-abiding citizen because the government is judging them for some bad decisions they made. They've got to work to change that narrative. I did that terribly as a defendant. They have an opportunity to do better. But at the time you were sitting in front of the FBI agent, you weren't just lying to him. You were lying to yourself. And to my lawyers, flushing money down the toilet. I was a lawyer's dream client, potentially. You said you spent 50 grand. 50 grand just to get in the door and sign a retainer for a white-collar defense attorney. I blew through 50 grand. Lying. Lying immediately. I didn't want to own and acknowledge my criminal conduct. As I wrote in Lessons from Prison, I needed someone like me to drop a bucket of cold ice on my head and maybe throw a right punch and say, get it together, bud. I didn't have that. You said that you then got a criminal lawyer. I did. You were talking about taking a polygraph, and this lawyer said, look, do not lie. You cannot beat this polygraph. Do not kid yourself. Do not go in there and try to lie. And you studied countermeasures. Not only before I studied countermeasures, I told my lawyer, I said, I'm insulted. I'm innocent. I've done nothing wrong. I'm being swept into this. I'm insulted that you actually would suggest that I would cheat this exam. This is how little you think of me as a client of yours. He said, Justin, please. You're very smart, but you can make some dumb decisions. Do not cheat the exam. So, of course, once I left his office. You then went to the internet, started downloading 
I still have the receipt, Dr. Phil, $350. I bought a lie detector test and I studied very aggressively for several days studying to beat that exam and mastering all of the techniques. All the countermeasures, everything from attacking the shoe to tightening your muscles and... The tush. The tush, (laughs) everything. And you got in there and failed miserably. The lie detector test is presided by a former FBI agent. I did it at the, the office in San Francisco. And I sat for the test and I squeezed my innards when appropriate, pinched the toe when I was supposed to. And I thought, I have this. Like, I'll be back on the golf course in two days. This is great. Then the results came back and my lawyer asked the FBI agent to leave. And then they said with greater than 99.99% I had failed the exam. And I remember looking out into Alcatraz from the San Francisco office thinking, this is not good. You said, and I quote from your book, your lawyer said, Justin, you're going to prison. It's time to wrap your mind around that reality. You're on incredibly weak ground here. The government prosecutors are prepared to charge you with numerous felonies, including now obstruction of justice. Yes. Did it hit you then? Embarrassingly, no. What I did do was say, do whatever you have to do to ensure I get the best possible outcome. Whatever I have to say to try to avoid a lengthy prison term, because my lawyers told me that you're going to get five years in prison without question. I remember saying, how could I get five or six or seven years? I was swept into this. I didn't understand that whether you had intent or not, how you respond to trouble plays a significant role in your outcome. They said, you need to trust us to protect your interests because you're not. When it finally hits you, that you suddenly realized how suicide seemed like a viable option for so many people. You could see how you felt trapped. When I was staring out to Alcatraz prison after failing that lie detector test, I understood how suicide could be a viable option. I couldn't envision one day in prison, let alone five years. You came to terms with that. At some point, you did make a plea, right? I did. I pled guilty to one kind of conspiracy. When you did that, when you made the plea, you had to spell out certain things, right? I had to own and acknowledge my conduct in front of Judge Wilson. Right. Did that feel like an unburdening to you, or did that feel like a low point for you? The unburdening for me came after I was sentenced because I had some clarity. I had a clearly defined prison term and a clearly defined release date. The hardest part for me and for many of our clients of white-collar advice is the guilty plea because you're standing in front of an open court acknowledging your criminal conduct. Then, of course, the flood of press releases come, the embarrassment and shame to your family, and the fallout really begins at the guilty plea. By sentencing, in many ways, you're so numb to all of the fallout that you're desensitized to it. The guilty plea was the hardest part for me. Once you made the plea and you knew you got 18 months and you served how many? I served a little more than 15 months total, a little more than 12 months in prison. And three was in a halfway house, right? Yes, in Hollywood. Okay. When we look at what's happening at this point, we've got 50 people so far that have been charged. On March 12th on DailyMail.com, the headline comes out, Actresses Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman are among 50 people charged in massive college entrance exam cheating scandal in which parents paid $25 million in bribes to get their kids into elite schools like Yale, Georgetown, and Stanford. First off, I hate that 90% of the publicity has gone to three of the people yes. among the 50. Agreed. But I mean, that's just what it is. At this point, one of those three has pled, Felicity Huffman. Yes. 
The other two have pled not guilty. Yep. They had charges added on top of that. And then out of the other 47, some of those have pled, some of them have not. That's correct. I believe 13 have already pled guilty. Okay. What's going through the minds of these people that aren't pleading right now? Because the fact of the matter is they rolled Singer fairly early, and he's been wearing a wire for a good while, right? More than a year. More than a year. This is not a smoke and mirrors case. They didn't bring this case until they had it. I would agree with that. I think people don't understand. Isn't it true that most of these prosecutors go through the prosecutorial phase of their career in preparation for going to the defense side of the docket? The U.S. attorney that indicted me, David Willingham, is now a defense attorney representing one of the defendants in this college candle case. So, yes. I spent a lot of my career at Courtroom Sciences, Inc., which is a trial science firm, and I worked with DAs, assistant district attorneys, U.S. attorney, assistant U.S. attorneys. These men and women all wind up being on the defense side of the docket, and they love to say, I never lost a case. That's right. They never lost a case because they never take a case until they have it locked. That's right. They identify what is low-hanging fruit and what is not, and they use the government resources accordingly. And until they've got their ducks in a row, the dots connected with a bright red line Mm -hmm. where the town fool can see how you get from A to B to C to D to conviction, they just don't bring the case. They just have the detectives keep working it until they can bring it tied up with a bow. That's right. So by the time these 50 indictments were brought, they had this wrapped up. They had tapes. I mean, we can't try it here, but chances are pretty good this is a laydown. That's right. And they went into it knowing there's going to be immediately some defendants that accept responsibility, those that deny and evade and don't accept responsibility, and those who are going to go to trial. And some in this case, to be clear, will be taking this to trial. Right. So there won't be clarity for many of them for quite some time. You suspect that your mindset, when you were in denial, telling yourself, this just is not part of my life. I'm not destined to go to prison. This was not in your cards. Denial makes you feel better. It provides some moments of solace, but longer term, it's a recipe for disaster. I didn't recognize that at the time. I said, okay, it's denial. Go down this road. I didn't do it. And it felt good. But as I just mentioned, it was longer term. It was ended up horrifically. What happens in your experience when you've got a group here of 50, but they're not a group. They're going to be tried individually. When some of them plead out, the deal they make probably involves some time in prison. They're going to prison. I think all of them. What does that mean for those that make deals later? If the early people made deals that included prison time, there's no way those that come after them can do it without prison. That's correct. Those who accept responsibility later in the process, the government will justify a longer prison term at sentence in part because they'll say, Your Honor, we've had to spend X amount of government resources. This defendant delayed the inevitable. So as I've written and coached our clients, if you've done it, don't walk but run to the U.S. Attorney's Office to take a deal because the fewer resources they have invested in you, the better. The question is, do they view their actions as criminal and are they willing to acknowledge that they made these bad decisions and begin to endure the lifelong stigma of being a convicted felon. And frankly, federal prison, Dr. Phil, can be the easiest part of the sanction. It's all the accompanying problems that follow. And for some, it's just too much to bear. I've had 
clients who were lawyers who said, I broke the law, but I've got to go to trial because if I lose my law license, I'll never earn another penny. I'll say, that's not true. And I can point them to many, many people who have lost their licenses and been incredibly successful as a result of the conviction. So sometimes they're too short-sighted. I'm going to lose my license. I'm going to read my name on the cover of the New York or Los Angeles Times. I can't do it. And they're not thinking three, five, 10 years ahead and then working their way back and assessing what they would like their life to look like. I think old sayings get to be old sayings because they're profound. Yes. Like stitch in time saves nine. It's been around for generations because it just fits generation after generation. And that old saying, first loss, best loss, mm-hmm. you're saying get in there early before A, you've pissed them off, B, they've spent hours and hours and hours of having to prepare this case. Yes. Now you want to come in and make a deal, and they're sitting there saying, I offered you a deal before you made me work weekends, before you made us spend all this time, money, and effort. Now you want a better deal than the person that came in here and pled out nine months ago? No way, Jack. It's illogical that yeah. the government would respond It's just that illogical. Way. Correct. You're seeing that when the government is sending target letters to adult children who might have been a part of this case, you can bet those letters are primarily going to parents in this case who have yet to plead guilty. And yeah, those a, are leverage letters. It's a wonderful tool to use. These parents go from worrying about their child's reputation and legacy to their freedom and imprisonment. It changes the game. I suspect as a result of that tactic, you'll see more guilty pleas, including yeah. hopefully not indicting. But if it goes on long enough, you can fully expect the government to follow through on these letters and indict children. And it changes everything. Because they don't have to bluff. No. I mean, they have the resources. Endless resources. Just this week, April 17th, this was in DailyMail.com, exclusive, Lori Laughlin's daughter is under criminal investigation in college admission scandal with prosecutors launching probe to see what she knew about her parents' faux crew coup. They're saying, okay, she took a picture on a rowing machine And she got in as a crew member. Yes. So they're saying, all right, looks to me like she knew something about it. So they've sent a letter to her. Now they've upped the game. That's all it takes, Dr. Phil. If that turns out to be true, she participated in a conspiracy to break the law. And people have gone to prison for less. I know because I serve time in prison with people who have served time for less. She would be just as culpable as her parents. That's right. She may get a different outcome because of her role and many, many things that factor into it. She wasn't on the recordings. She wasn't on the recording, things like that. But whether it's three months for her or probation for her or a year and a day, the felony conviction is so utterly devastating. Now, it may be different in some of these cases if there are such massive resources where it may never matter. But still, there are inconveniences once you get into the wheels of the criminal justice system, probation, home confinement, imprisonment, the stigma that accompanies it, and spending years or decades to work to get your good name back. I once mistakenly wrote that I had arrived. We've never arrived. We're works in progress. And I know for me, it will take the rest of my life to fully make amends for my bad choices. Listen, I'm not a lawyer. And I don't mean to brag, but I'm not. (laughs) But I've really been surprised that they haven't gone after the kids more in this yet because at absolute minimum, they have taken the benefit of the transaction, Mm -hmm. which is conversion. That's right. It's like the parents robbed the bank and gave the money to the child and the child spends the money. That's conversion. They got the benefit of the crime. That's right. They've eaten from the poison tree. Yep. I'm really surprised that they haven't gone after more of the kids. Isn't that likely the next strategic way for those that don't plead? 
Without question. Uh, that is the next best strategy for the government to get more guilty pleas, to help those, in this case, recognize that we view what you did as criminal. You're not recognizing that there are victims here and you're focused on yourself and how you think you have been wronged and how your own life is imploding. And we have endless resources and are willing to go to a jury to tell a different story, to tell Mm -hmm. a different narrative. And they will continue to use those resources, including indicting children. And then at some point, if that were to happen, most of them will accept responsibility. In some cases, they could spend millions of dollars in legal fees. I've had defendants call me and say, well, I've known of your work for two years, but I I was always going to go to trial. And they've spent $2 million in legal fees. And then on the eve of trial, they plead guilty. And then they all end up saying the same thing. Man, I wish I got here two years ago. I've been in jail this whole time. I'm just not getting credit for it. All of these defendants, Phil, we have to understand, are already in prison. They're just not getting credit for time served. And that's why it's sentencing. It's easier because you can begin to plan. You've said this, and I want to talk about what you mean by that because I understand it. I think it's a very profound observation on your part. You say these people are already in prison. Your point is they're paying a price right now, right? And what do you mean by that? So people knock my 18 months as a cup of coffee. But the three and a half years before I went to prison was the hardest part. Same thing with these defendants. 24 hours a day, it's on their mind, wondering and worrying what their future will look like. And they have to learn to avoid bouts of uh, depression, substance abuse, in many cases, uh, even suicide, and the utter embarrassment and shame that accompanies this process. Sometimes people, once they get sentenced, they're like, I'm frankly excited to get to jail. I need a break. This has been going on for so long. So they may be in beautiful homes and have the best lawyers and have all the trappings of success, but it doesn't change that it's on their mind 24 hours a day and they're begging for clarity and they're in the land of the unknown. Particularly those that are in this group out of the 50, again, I don't want to focus on the three that are getting all the publicity, but if you look through the 50, they're all what most people would consider wealthy. Yes. Or they couldn't be paying this kind of money. That's right. They've paid 50000 75000 a million, half a million different sort of things to get their children into schools that are very expensive once they get there. Yeah. They do have privileged lives. And you know that once they come under this microscope and they're painted with this scandalous brush, that all of a sudden they're left off the list That's right. of the social events. They're left off the list of the charity ball, the this, the that, the other. So they start to get isolated. Correct. And now they feel like they're... They're sinking. They're ostracized. Yeah. And it's foreign to them because it's never happened to them, yeah. and they struggle to respond. They got the scarlet letter. Yes. Now they're feeling that they're humiliated, they're isolated, embarrassed. They may have lost their jobs. They may have been kicked off boards. They may have been kicked out of... Country clubs. Country clubs, organizations. And this is America, so they're probably pretty leveraged. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, income dries up. Their employability goes down for right right now. They're in hell at this point. They're waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning staring at the ceiling if they went to sleep at all. That's right. Wondering, oh, my God, what have I done? And what have I done to my children? Mm -hmm. If they didn't know, and my job is to protect my children, and now here I've done this. Now I'm marked. Our family name is marked. My child is marked. 
we're going to go broke. I may go to jail. So some of them are saying, I have to fight this because if I lose, I lose everything. So hell, I have to fight it. And there's a number of people in prison who knew they would get convicted at trial and get a sentence that is three times as long, yet they can spend the rest of their life maintaining their innocence. It's interesting you mentioned that, a client of mine in this case. We talk a lot about this can be a wonderful legacy piece for your children if you use it the right way, if you convey to them that there are consequences for bad choices, if you convey to them that in retrospect you tried to help them, but you did not fully consider how these choices would impact their lives and people in the community. Let's ensure that this experience is not a waste, that your kids, 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 kids are all better as a result of mom or dad going to federal prison for 18 months or two years. And if they can look at it from that perspective and say, okay, in the totality of my life, let's hope I live to be 100. This is 18 months, this is two years, it's a little blip. I beg them and I coach them to ensure it doesn't amount to a life sentence. And that's often the case, uh, Dr. Phil. You serve two years and 30 years from now, you're still talking about that time you served in prison and it's come to define your life. That cannot happen. Well, let's assume this. And again, this is, I wanna be general, I wanna be hypothetical here because I don't want you to speak about any specific client. Let's assume that you have multiple clients out of the 50 in this situation. Let's assume that you're speaking in generalizations and about no specific client whatsoever. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the motivation that caused these people to do this? Did they justify this? Along the lines of everybody does this, it's a contribution, you build a building on campus, you get in, I'm just doing it this way, this is a donation. Do they know it's wrong when they do it? And why are they doing it? Some of them absolutely knew that it was wrong. Others thought perhaps it was wrong, maybe a civil sanction, but they did not consider what they did criminal. And the rationalization was this has been going on for more than 20 years with great amounts of success. And as you said, other families may donate 2 or $3 million to universities to build buildings. This turns out to be less expensive. So it's rationalizing the behavior. Then, of course, opportunity. I lecture and travel the country talking about ethics and white-collar crime. And as I've said, you can never break the law unless you see some opportunity. And, of course, the opportunity was someone presenting them an opportunity to get their children into school under the guise of this is going to help my child. And many of them just did not stop to consider the consequences of their actions. What would actually happen if they got caught? They just had the resources, they rationalized they wanted to help their children. In some cases, didn't think about it again, Dr. Phil. And when it came undone, there's the realization in some cases like, God, it's so obvious. How how did I not know? Of course this was wrong. Of course I broke the law. Of course this is cheating. And some in this case have absolutely done that. And I give those credit for doing that. I wish more would do it. Why were they doing it? I have two young children, a four-year-old and a 10-month-old, and I want to help my children when they fall, and I want to fix things. And my wife's always saying to me, let her grow up. She's okay. And and I always just want to go and fix it. They wanted to help their children. In some of these cases, the children had been coddled, spoiled. Everything had always gone their way. They'd never dealt with any setbacks or adversity. Uh, Certainly, uh, adversity could be not getting into your desired school. And as parents, they wanted to fix that, and they had the means to fix it. I have to say, I was highly offended. I went down the list, and I couldn't find anybody bribing their way into North Texas State University. (laughs) And that really hurt my feelings, because I think it is a really good school. (laughs) There wasn't anybody bribing their way into my alma mater, and it pissed me off, I have to say. But 
this isn't about the education. No, it's There's about the, no way about the education. No, the it's about saying I went to X. Yes, that's right. I went to Harvard. I went to Yale. Yeah. I went to USC. I went yes. here, there, or other. It's posting on Instagram and the social media. I'm at this university. Hundreds of thousands of followers and using USC as a means to their end, which is advancing their own agenda. So even then, they're not trying to buy their child a ticket to a great education. They're trying to buy their child a ticket to a social group, a fraternity, sorority in society. Not the university sorority or fraternity, but this network when they get out of school so they can go and say, I'm a Trojan or I'm a Harvard grad or I'm a this or a that. Like I say till this day, I was a proud member of the USC baseball team. It's a big deal for me and I proudly discuss it, proudly play in the alumni game every year and it was essentially the same thing with these cases. It's a badge of honor they would have been able to wear and leverage off of for the rest of their life. You should ask me this question and I should come up with an answer like I'm all-knowing or something. (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm not the repository of all knowledge. And I sometimes look at people and shake my head and say, what the hell are they thinking? Let's look at USC, for example. If you don't have the grades to get into USC, let's face it, you can go to Santa Monica Junior College for a semester or a year, but certainly you can go to Santa Monica Junior College, take 12 hours of general subjects, make a passing grade and transfer to USC or UCLA for sure. That saves you $500,000 and a prison term. That's right. I've discussed with my mom, who's a huge fan of yours, of course, and she shared this story when she wanted me to play the piano as a young boy. And I was terrible at piano. I'd hide in the closet when the instructor would come. And my mom said, I would never force you to continue to do it just because I wanted you to do it. That wasn't your skill set. That wasn't your aptitude. You move on to something else. It's okay if you don't have the grades to get into USC or Yale. I think to a degree, these parents have underestimated perhaps what their children were capable of by trying to take some shortcuts and cheat. And I think that's something that we have to address and frankly is being addressed. They underestimated what their kids are capable of. Is it just ego? All of their peers graduate and go straight to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Michigan, USC, UCLA, and their kid has to go to junior college for a year? Is it an ego thing? Without, without a doubt, there's a stigma attached to it. I remember my senior year in high school, when you hear what university your classmates are going to go to, you immediately assess, well, that's a good school, that's so-so, of course. So when you've had everything go your way and you're used to, as I have said in some of these cases, you know, sycophants always giving them everything they need and telling them they're wonderful and great, as was the case with me to a degree. Everything had always gone my way. I didn't know how to deal with setback and adversity. I was coddled, as some of these students or children were. You don't want to disrupt that. You want to find a way, if you have the means and season opportunities, I write about, to continue it. And if you don't fully consider how these actions could influence others, you just move on with your day. See, the FBI does an incredible job of piecing cases together but oftentimes crimes that take place, it's just in an instant. You just make a decision, you don't think it through, and down the road, it's so obvious in retrospect, my gosh, how could I not know? We just go on with our days. And many of the parents in this case made a decision, seized an opportunity, paid the money, and went on with their day. You have these people that have applied, got turned down. Yes. And so now there's a class action suit for like, what is it, 500? Big numbers. Big, big numbers. There's a class action suit brought by people that didn't get in. Yes. 
because the university was not a good steward. Multiple lawsuits are filed for more than $500 billion, accusing Yale, USC, and more of letting students waste money applying for elite schools when it's actually rigged in the wake of the college admissions cheating scandal. These people are pissed off. I went all this trouble and got turned down when somebody bought their way in. That's right. That's why we have to acknowledge, and I encourage defendants in this case, including my clients who have pled guilty, to acknowledge first and foremost, it's not about you. It's not about how your life is imploding. It's not about the reputational fallout. It's about victims, students that work hard who are denied access because of shortcuts that you took. There will be continual collateral damage as a result of this, as we just saw through these lawsuits. For these defendants to get whole and for the victims to feel as if they are authentic and genuine in their remorse, they've got to do more than pay lip service. They're going to have to create a record in the coming years that demonstrates we knew it was wrong, we're sorry. To the extent that we can make it right, this is what we're capable of doing. And it really does take a lifetime. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. On Oops! The Podcast, join me, comedian Giulio Gallarotti, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant, Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. I think that now that the case has been brought, this is a public case, so now these prosecutors are being watched. Yes. And so if they let these wealthy defendants, these entitled defendants, skate in any way, the defendants have to realize that their prosecutors are being watched. They're being held their feet to the fire now. The judge, too. So it's kind of like in the Jesse Smollett case Mm -hmm. where they dismissed a 16-count indictment and he just walks away then all of a sudden everybody's up in arms they can't do this with these people they have to follow these people to the end right that is exactly right i've told these defendants because of the narrative that's been painted in the court of public opinion that many people feel because they're rich and privileged they're going to be able to buy their way out of prison that they have to work harder than ever to change that narrative and to convey that they identify with victims they're sorry and they'll never return to a courtroom so you can imagine if a judge were to sentence one or two of them to probation and a similar case with a similar loss, people could easily point to someone that got two years in prison. They're going to say, here's the two-tiered system of justice in America. Here we go again. The rich privilege get probation. This person gets two years because they couldn't afford the lawyer. So that's why I've told these defendants, it's harder than you could possibly imagine. For this to go well, Dr. Phil, it's got to be a full-time job of preparing. Not living in denial, not sleeping, not complaining, not blaming the government, not lamenting over the unfairness that has fallen on them. It is a full-time job to create a new record to convey why you're worthy of mercy and how you're creating a new record as a law-abiding citizen. Well, and here's the alternative. You're saying the smart thing to do is get in there early. If they've done it. If they've done it, to get in there early, own it, cut the best deal you can. Because they're already in prison, move on with your life. Yeah, because right now you're paralyzed. You're stuck. You're cheating through lie detector tests like I was. That's (laughs) right. The alternative, if they go on the attack, that too 
is going to consume their life for the next three to five years. And several million dollars. This stuff is what I used to call plaintiffing the defense. (laughs) You have to become the plaintiff, not the defendant. So you've got to start alleging prosecutorial abuse. You've got to start alleging defamation by Mm -hmm. Singer and those people. You've got to start alleging entrapment. You've got to start alleging all of these things that make you the victim. And that is a steep hill to climb when they're sitting there with tapes of you saying, I paid my money, I want my result. If this goes to trial, the default argument will be the prison parlance, this was a snitch, this was an informant, this was a criminal, how can anyone believe him? At the end of the day, that's what it's going to come down to. We got a snitch, how can you believe him? It's that simple. Then you're going to hear the tapes. and This is when you start to look at five years in prison and longer. They're going to be saying, okay, he was trying to deliver the goods for the prosecutor. So they're going to start playing the linguistics game and talking about words that he's saying to pull them in and get them to do this and do that. And it's going to come down to can they create a narrative that the jury will be sympathetic to and say – You know, they thought they were making a charitable donation. At that point, it breaks down when their kid's admitted as an athlete in a sport they've never played. From what we have heard, it simply defies logic that if what the government says is true, and look, as a convicted felon, I can't say that everything the government says I did, I did. I broke the lie, own it, I accept responsibility. So there may be parts of the case where the, the lawyers say, look, this didn't happen. We have to argue that. That's what they do, and they negotiate these plea deals. The goal at the end of the day is to acknowledge what you've done and nothing more. They have to understand that with what's in front of them, the odds of prevailing, just given the data of prevailing at trial in this country is so incredibly low to begin with. Seeing your name, United States of America versus Justin Paperni, you want to be objective, you want a jury box to be objective, good luck. Okay, I'm sorry. And that's why I would convey to them, if they've done it, own it, accept responsibility, focus on the victims and begin the process of healing and moving on with your life. But what I always tried to get defendants to understand when we were preparing for trial is that this presumption of innocence is the biggest bunch of bull I've ever heard in my life because here's what the jury thinks in my opinion. When I was at Courtroom Sciences, we ran mock trials, focus groups, all sorts of things in pretrial preparation, and we would run many mock jurors through a year. And I came to find that here's their mindset. When they get to court and they come down there and they see that judge sitting up there on that bench with that big seal behind them and those flags on either side and they've got armed guards in uniforms standing there and all these men and women are dressed up in suits and there's all this mahogany and wood around (laughs) and everybody's come down to this building with these big columns and they're wrapping the gavel and they're calling everything to order. That jury's sitting there thinking, you know what, if we're not down here for what that guy (laughs) over there's saying, then you need to explain to me why we are down here because there have been a hundred ways this case could have gone away before now. They wouldn't have brought this if they didn't have something. They could have settled this, dropped it, pled it out, done something. And if we're not here for what that prosecutor's saying, then you need to tell me why we are here. That's right. It's not you're innocent till proven guilty. If we're not here for their reason, then you need to tell me your story, and it better be better than theirs. This stuff about the burden of proof is on them, 
I just think that is bull. And if you look at the data, you're exactly right with the rate of people that get convicted. And when you're convicted at trial, the sanctions are measurably worse, including getting remanded at your sentencing or conviction and going through con air and transit and shackles and chains. And that's when you're really enduring the criminal justice system. And these are things that these defendants need to better understand. They need to recognize. And someone needs to help them understand how their actions were construed as criminal and how others who have done less have ended up in federal prison. And they are no different. Once you're in the crosshairs of the criminal justice system, it is very hard to emerge unscathed. I put on my defendant hat from a trial science perspective and said, okay, if I'm writing this out, if I'm trying to create a trial strategy for a defendant, what story do I have to tell? I've always believe your story goes a whole lot better when you're the only one telling it. (laughs) But as soon as somebody starts asking the hard questions, (laughs) I've dealt with a whole lot of conference room champions. They got a good story in the conference room. But you let somebody start saying, wait a minute, you kind of glossed. That sounded real good when you said it real fast, but slow down a minute. Uh, Let me ask again, you gave them $500,000. Let's talk about that for a minute. (laughs) And a picture of your kid on horseback and they've never ridden a horse they've never swam they've never done any of that so you need to tell me again how you thought that was a donation for the poor children when you slow it down that's a hard story to fill in right it's a hard story to fill in and i empathize with them because i was at that point in my life delusional having convinced myself that what i did wasn't that wrong and they're to a degree doing the same thing that maybe it was wrong but it shouldn't rise to the level of being indicted or potentially going to federal prison, uh, defaulting to, we incarcerate too many people in this country, and it would be a waste of taxpayer resources. I've heard all of those things. I'm no good in prison. Let me work and contribute back to the community. These are things I've heard over the last 11 years that someone right now on the inside of federal prison is saying. So I agree in some cases, we lock up too many people. The point is the government, they're in the crosshairs. The government feels they broke the law. The irony is they wanted to help their children Yet for those who haven't accepted responsibility, they're making matters harder on those that they're actually trying to help. It's really twisted. It's really ironic. And I wish they would have a a better understanding of that. Because if they did, it is cathartic to talk about it. It, It's almost selfish. I wrote my book, Lessons from Prison. From prison, I was grateful to get letters of people telling me, I read your book. It helped me. Thank you so much. But it was also very helpful for me. It was cathartic to write and share my thoughts and to purge and talk about how I broke the law and how I want to become better. The same can happen for all of these defendants. I empathize with them. They're good people. They're good parents. They're smart. They've lived lives of distinction, successful lives. They have values, clearly but they strayed and they made some bad decisions and they've got to work to let this be a little sliver of their life rather than letting it define not just their legacy, but their children's legacy and so on. That's the challenge and opportunity they have. Let me ask you this. Should you have gone to prison? Yes. Why? It was a nonviolent crime. You didn't hit anybody. You didn't kill anybody. You didn't maim anybody. I was raised with opportunity and a lot of privilege, something I told the judge. I was raised by parents that work hard and taught me right from wrong. I played baseball at USC and my coaches held me accountable. When I worked my way into my career of money management, I began to descend to the lowest levels of beginning to admire and associate with men who were unethical, dishonest, yet they made the most money. They had the country clubs, the Rolexes, the cars, the homes, and I didn't pay attention to imbalances in their personal life. So by virtue of associating with some people, I very easily succumbed to bad behaviors. I stopped pursuing values. And as a result of that, when I faced a decision that should have been very clear, a decision that I clearly knew was wrong. I didn't stop to think. I easily gave in to temptation, and while no one might have been killed or died, 
people were hurt, and there should be consequences that come with breaking the law. I had a Series 7. I had a degree from USC. I had several hundred million dollars under management. As Judge Wilson said in my sentencing, people need to know what happened when you turn the other way for money. Most don't get caught. You did. I'm sending you to prison. So it makes an example, and it works as a deterrent for others. Listen, I'm Mr. Accountability. I'm going to tell you what I think in a minute, but why prison for you? Because it costs $50,000 a year to keep you in prison. It's not like you're going to go rob a 7-Eleven if you're out. Why not put an ankle bracelet on you? Why not restrict your movement? Why not make you go downtown and work counseling underprivileged kids, helping them fill out college applications, helping them prepare for GEDs, helping them do something instead of sitting in a cage for 15 months? So while I agree that the consequence was significant and I should have gone to prison, you can question how long. Was 18 months the appropriate remedy? We can always argue that. The reason why is because the government feels it will then become the wild, wild west. If guys know they can break the law and insider trade and play a role in just breaking the law and the sanction isn't going to be imprisonment, then they will argue that crime is going to become rampant, especially if the consequence isn't so significant. So that's the government's reasoning for recommending prison. And the irony in my case and many of our clients' cases at White Collar Advice is the imprisonment, the time on the inside is the easiest part. It's a chance to, to recalibrate, to prepare for richer experiences upon release, to, to get it together. It's that time before and coming home. I wish in my case or in many cases that once you've served the prison term, once I served my 18 months and then three years on federal probation, that perhaps the, the consequence ends. It really is a lifelong sanction. Everything that, from licensing issues to reputational issues to career issues. I've been introduced on Wall Street with big banks before a lecture, and they say, we'd love to hire Justin with his experience and skill set. He knows the consequences of making bad choices. We can't hire him because he's a convicted felon who can't get a license. So the question is, should it be a lifelong sanction? I would argue we don't use the power of the pardon enough in this country to expunge federal felonies. My experience is... I always say the best predictor of future behavior is relevant past behavior. Yes. So the best predictor of whether a prospective employee is going to steal from an employer, you can give them MMPI, Millen, Multiaxials, Rorschachs, whatever. But the best predictor is a good history. Mm-hmm. Go talk to their last three employers, and if you can find out where they stole from them or not, that's going to give you the best idea where they're going to steal from you or not. Mm-hmm. So you committed fraud. So you would say, okay, the best predictor is that you would commit fraud again, unless there's been some substantial intervening variable. So you committed fraud, but then you got caught, humiliated, held accountable. So the chance that you're likely to reoffend is probably much less than the next hundred guys that haven't offended and paid the price for it. You're probably the best bet on Wall Street having been burned. There's no question. I've been introduced on many stages in front of thousands of people, and the person introducing me has said the same thing. I've been to sentencing with clients where the U.S. attorney says, Your Honor, the likelihood of this defendant reoffending is practically none. However, for the deterrence factor, we ask for 24 months of incarceration. You are absolutely right. None of our clients of White Collar Advice have reoffended. Well, let me ask you this Do you think that these university scammers should go to prison? I think some of them should go to prison, those at the top who were clearly running a criminal conspiracy 
and enriching themselves for an extended period of time. We talk about the three celebrities who have got 90% of the attention. I think warehousing them inside of a federal prison is indeed a waste of taxpayer resources. They have endured enough. They are living in shame. It is absolutely a lifelong stigma. Unfortunately, the way the system works is I write about an ethics in motion. My second book, intent doesn't matter to the government. Those who cooperate get the most favorable deal. So the irony is that Singer, for example, because of his cooperation and his willingness to wear a wire and go undercover, despite his orchestrating and running this for lengthy periods of time, stands to get a better deal because of that cooperation than someone who might have seized an opportunity without spending three seconds to think about it. That's the irony and something that is unfortunate. And it could lead to a longer prison term for some of these actors or actresses when you know, they were swept into this in many ways. They reward those who cooperate and cut deals and accept responsibility. Well, one of the things that we used to do at CSI is witness prep. You know, that's how I met Oprah. I was helping to defend her in the Mad Cow case up in Amarillo. We had just finished defending Diane Sawyer and ABC in the Food Lion case, mm -hmm. where they'd put people undercover in Food Lion, where they were taking expired meat, wrapping it in colored cellophane, tripling the price, and putting it in the gourmet section. Mm -hmm. One of the things we did was prepare witnesses, and I always prepared the witness that your testimony starts now mm -hmm. because you're going on trial in your community and if you're high profile, you're going to be in the media. And if they put up a picture of you out partying and dancing or on the back of a boat at the lake, yucking it up and having a high old time, that gets into the jury box. That hurts us. And I would tell them, your testimony starts when you pull into the parking lot at the courthouse. It's in the bathroom at the courthouse. It's in the hallway at the courthouse. It's in the lunchroom. It's not just when you're on the jury box. We've seen some of these defendants that have shown up at the courthouse and they act like it's a red carpet. Signing autographs. And yucking it up and people chanting and they're waving and stuff like that. The judges are aware of that. The prosecutors are aware of that. The jury becomes aware of that. That stuff matters, does it not? That comes back to the post-defense conduct that I discussed earlier. If you're pretending as if this isn't happening, blaming others, and denying the inevitable, it's going to be off-putting to the stakeholders, namely the prosecutor, probation officer, and judge. So they need to understand. What they did to break the law potentially was not understand how their actions would influence people. Some of them in this case are continuing down that same road. It They're not stopping. Lack of insight. Lack of awareness. Yeah. It's easy to knock the lawyers and say, ah, these lawyers, and I've heard that from people, what are these lawyers doing? Well, the, the lawyers could be doing what the lawyers did for me. They tried to tell me, Justin, own it acknowledge it. You made a mistake. Let's move on with your life. And I said, you don't fully understand what happened here. Why have I paid you? I'm going to go get somebody else and I'm going to give him 50,000. And he didn't, I'll go, go. The lawyers could be doing an excellent job here. It's the defendant's job to actually take the advice. That's crucial here. A lot of defendants are unwilling to take the advice. So you try to find somebody that'll tell you what you want to hear, and then you get a bad result. You're saying, and I am agreeing 100%. If you know, see, nobody knows more than the defendant how much the other side has on them. Mm -hmm. 
they know for sure. Now they can pretend. So they, I'm going to wait for discovery. Okay, why wait yeah. six months? You know. Yeah, you know what they. <laughs> oh yes. Wanted. You know what you oh, said. Yes. You know what you wrote yes. down. You know what text you said. Yep. You know who heard you say it. And there are no secrets. If there is a third party involved, you can bet they're going to find them, and you can think they're your friend. You don't have very many of any friends that are willing to lie under oath. That's right. Imprisonment, the loss of freedom changes everything. The irony of the criminal justice system is the more you share and open up and purge and talk about what you did and what you've learned and how you'll do better— the more the system is going to reward you, the better treatment you're going to get from a prosecutor. I wish more of them in this case would understand that. It's a win-win. It gets them what their goal is, the shortest possible prison sentence, and it helps them improve their life and move on. Here's the thing, because I want to break this down, because this is not just the university scandal, and I'm going to I'm, I'm going to weigh in on that in just a minute about some thoughts I have and see what you think about it. Okay. This is university scam, but we're talking about particularly white-collar crime. People are listening to this. What you've said so far, and I've probably listened to 15 or 20 of your video presentations, speeches, Mm -hmm. things from the Internet over the last two or three years. So, Mom, I really am a fan of your boy here. Uh, He is very wise, and he has taken what his experiences have taught him and paid it forward. Thank you. I mean, thank you very much for saying that. Wise counsel. Thank you. What you've said is, if you know what you know, and it is that if they do their homework, and they will, that they've got you, then you're saying, go in and cut the best deal you can as quick as you can, because the less sweat equity they have in this, the more likely they are to cut you a reasonable deal. Then... You talk about something that I think people so underestimate the importance of, and that is the pre-sentence hearing statements that are made. And it doesn't make a damn what the lawyer says, but you talk about four elements of the pre-sentence hearing points. Will you go over those and talk about why it's so important that these things are covered when they go into the pre-sentence hearing? So we have to understand that at the pre-sentencing hearing, the probation officer has the narrative that's been given to them by the government, namely your plea agreement that shows you broke the law. Unless defendants begin to change that narrative, they're going to be judged by that plea agreement, by the government's version of events. So we coach defendants to articulate at a pre-sentence interview or in a narrative or statement they'll make or in a sentencing video four points. And the first is, it's not about you. It's not about how your life is imploding. You've got to identify with your victims. You've got to be able to say, as a result of my conduct, I created victims, I'm ashamed, and I'm embarrassed. I recognized I hurt people. It's always the focus on the victims. It is not my friends, family, my community, and the victims. The victims always comes first. So that's number one. And who are the victims in this university scam? Are we talking about the university? Are we talking about those that didn't get preferential treatment? I would argue that the victim is the student perhaps working two or three jobs, studying as best they can, applying to schools, and their application was denied because someone who might not have earned it took their spot. They've got to identify and apologize to those victims. Number two, properly demonstrate your remorse. If we understand the stakeholders, the judge, prosecutor, probation officer may think, oh, you're only saying sorry because you got caught. 
certainly some people say I'm sorry only because they got caught. Sure. So rather than a lot of lip service or happy talk, they've got to begin to convey through their own efforts, not just the lawyer. We talk about that a great deal through our work. Lawyers are paid to extol the virtues of their right. clients. You look at the greatest criminals in our history, Dr. Phil, their lawyer said something. Po Charlie Manson, the lawyer probably said something about Charlie Manson positive mm. at his sentencing. They're paid to do it. Yeah. And I hope these lawyers do it well. What we've learned is they've got to begin to articulate through their own efforts, their remorse, their contrition, and build this record over a sustained period of time. Three, they need to talk about what they've learned through this experience. They need to become introspective. They need to walk the government through the pressures they face, the rationalizations they gave into, and the opportunities they seized. If they can begin to show that awareness, they then can convey, I'm not going to be here again. I've learned my lesson more than just saying, I'm sorry, don't send me to prison because I have children, which is what a lot of defendants do. And number four, they do have to convey to the judge and a probation officer and prosecutor why they're never going to return to a courtroom. And if they can convey those four points in a pre-sentence interview, they're going to begin to equalize the narrative. The government should begin to look at them for more than some out-of-character decisions they have made, look at the totality of their life. Because in this case, these are wonderful parents. These are wonderful people who have contributed and led lives of contribution for a long time. And we want others through these four points to see more of that rather than saying nothing, which is what many of them do. And if you say nothing, what's the judge going to judge them by? the plea agreement and the government's version of events. These four points are the salient points we covered a pre-sentence interview, and it changes the game if done well and done authentically. In my opinion, there is no doubt that these items actually change the likely sentence that you're going to get. I mean, if somebody hears these, it makes a difference. We have had clients call us after a sentencing and say, by virtue of my efforts to convey to the judge that I'm sorry and remorseful and I identify with victims, the judge commented on it. It's in the transcripts. I can point to it. I got this sentence. The government asked for three years. I got 18 months. The government asked for two years. I got probation. I got one year of supervised release instead of three. I'm so grateful. And what I tell defendants is, even if the government asks for three years, and even if you get three years, for the rest of your life, you will never live in regret. A lot of defendants live in regret, and they serve time in federal prison wondering, I wish I would have done more to prepare, but I didn't. It's nice not to have any additional regrets as we age and serve time in prison. And there's a sense of dignity and strength from knowing you did all you could to prepare. I spoke with Judge Benita Pearson on stage last year in a lawyer event, and she said to me, Justin, defendants should leave my courtroom exhausted because they've worked day and night to prepare for the best outcome. Let's talk about this for a second. Sure. Because these are so important, and I'm not trying to conduct a guilty defendant school here, but on the other hand, I always talk to people about taking accountability for what they do, that can get said so much that it loses its meaning. And yes. I like the way that you have broken it down because you say, number one, identify with your victims. We mm -hmm. talked about that. So whoever that is, whoever you have hurt, you need to be empathetic, stand in their shoes and make the judge understand, hey, I get yes. what I've done here. Number two, you said properly demonstrate your remorse and contrition. How do they do that? Let's be specific about that. They're standing in front of the judge. They've bribed their way in. They've lied. They've conspired. They've misused their wealth, their leverage, whatever. And they need to demonstrate that they're truly sorry and that there's no arrogance there, that they really are contrite about this. What's the best way to do that? More than saying I'm sorry, they've got to 
begin to create a, a new record that shows how they are sorry and remorseful. That can include volunteering and giving back. And I'm not talking about some of the calls I receive from someone that says, I'm getting sentenced in two days. Can you line up some volunteer work for me? It's yeah. going to help me look good in front of the judge. No, no, no. Over a sustained period of time, volunteering, giving back, and being open and honest that I have had privilege and opportunity in life that many people did not have. And rather than live in shame and denial, I want to use my experience to help people uh, do better. I want to contribute in a way that I never have before. That can be impactful and judge. At USC, my alma mater, I've spoken more than 125 times. I've had clients share the stage with me at the USC Marshall School of Business, get up and share their story as a cautionary tale and say, I have a wife, I have, I have children, I have lost everything. Let me tell you my story with the hope that you will never go through this, how one decision can jeopardize the rest of your life. Please, I beg you to listen to me. That conveys to a judge they want to help people. Their motives are in the right place. That's different than a lawyer saying, he's sorry, Your Honor, and he's a nonviolent offender who won't reoffend, sentence him to home confinement. So it's creating a, a new record over a period of time that's authentic and frankly, not just stopping once you've been sentenced. And that will help a lot of the defendants in this case. It's not just doing it to get the best outcome. It's continuing it for the years to come as I have. And that's how you really can rebuild your network and have people say to you, you know, Justin, you're better than some bad decisions you made. That's the goal for all of them. What you're saying is there is often a substantial gap between when somebody pleads and when they're sentenced. In my case, it was more than three years. Yeah. So there's a lot of time that goes on and they do an investigation because they're going to file a report with the court oftentimes. Yes. So they're going to find out what you're doing. I mean, if you've gotten two DUIs and yeah. well, all of this, I mean, all of this stuff weighs in. I had a client who went to a, an Ivy League school and he lost his job and he was looking for work. And prior to pleading guilty, he drove for Uber. And it was humbling and hard for someone who went to an Ivy League school who was making more than $500,000 a year to drive for Uber. You know what we did? We took some of the five-star reviews we got from Uber that said he was courteous and kind and honest and polite. We packaged up some of those reviews and got it to the judge, and the judge was impressed that he was willing to work. There's a number of defendants, and I wrote about this in Lessons from Prison, who feel some work is beneath them, that I'd rather sit at home than work at McDonald's. I wrote in Lessons from Prison, if my only opportunity is to work at McDonald's, I'm working at McDonald's. I've encumbered my family enough. And if defendants can recognize, hey, I need to start over. I need to rebuild. I need to create a new record like my client who drove for Uber did. That is humbling, and it's something that can really impress the court. That's what every defendant needs to do, create that new record. Yeah, and maybe that's speaking. Uh, it's a great tool. Maybe it's counseling kids. Yes, at, I have a number at, of clients who do that. At the Boys and Girls Club, maybe yep. it's working so you're bringing home enough money to pay the utilities. It's something where you're showing that you're not on some pedestal thinking you're better than everybody else. You're really sorry for what you've done and you realize you've got to start from the bottom up. Some defendants will call me and say, I watched this YouTube video you filmed that talked about me working and, and my lawyer said I shouldn't work and I should get off the grid. And I'd say, well, how are you going to sustain yourself for the next two or three years? You've got to develop a new skill set. You've got to work. And I, well, I just sit at home all day wondering and waiting. And I'll say, well, if, if two years go by, how can you articulate to the judge what you've learned and what your plan moving forward is if you've sat at home playing Xbox for two years? Does that seem logical to you? And they said, no, it doesn't seem logical. Here's the thing that I've learned about being a consultant for so many white-collar defendants. Once they know what they're supposed to do, some do it. What's interesting to me is how many know what they're supposed to do, and then they don't do it. Right. They've been told. It's one thing if you have no idea what to do. Okay, fine. But to actually know and then not do it, it's harder to have sympathy for them because they've been told what to do. And it's such an interesting dynamic when someone calls me 
And then two years later, they call me again. I say, we talked about what to do. What happened? Well, you know, I just, you know, it's been tough and hard. I get it. Life is hard. It's tough. But if your goal is the shortest sentence in the most favorable institution, Dr. Phil, you need to work. You need to create a new record on days that you don't want to. There were days right. I worked before I went to prison. I wanted to stay in bed and cry and loathe and blame and eat and drink and smoke. But I said, you know what? I, I've really put my mom through a lot. I've really hurt a lot of people. So I'm going to get out of bed. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to focus and I'm going to come home and I'm going to cry myself to sleep. Yeah. Defendants have to do that if they truly want to get the best possible sentence. And then number three, you say share your plans moving forward with the judge. What you're talking about is let the judge know my life's not over here. I've punched my ticket over here. I, I'm not going to have a Series 7 license anymore. I get that. I had that. I blew that. I yes. own that. But I can be a contributing member of society, and here's how I'm going to do that. They have got to build that record but before sentencing. They've got to create businesses or look for work and, and demonstrate and document yeah. how they're going about that. We have clients now, we're, we're writing books with them, we're building online businesses. Many of them are launching new businesses before they surrender. My bunkie in prison, very nice man, was in prison for a drug crime. At his sentencing, he told the judge, I want to be a counselor, Your Honor, and the judge said something like, Everyone convicted of a drug crime says that to me. What have you been doing over the last three years to prepare to be a drug counselor? And the defendant said, well, no, nothing. It's just what I want to do. It's happy talk. There was no follow through. Yeah. Got to begin to create that record for the judge. Yeah. And, you know, they pulled your ser Series 7 license, but yet you've lectured at USC at the Marshall School of Business over 125 times. You've got 200 corporate and university clients. Yes. You've been lecturing at NYU, the FBI Academy. Several events Penn at the State. FBI. Penn State, uh, Oklahoma State, KPMG, yeah. Wells Fargo, Grant Thornton, all over yeah. the country. And that's really been gratifying for you, right? To give back and contribute and help others. Yeah. It's, it's truly a win-win. To be authentic, to share lessons that I have learned with the goal that others will never have to go through. But something I address in my, my audience when I speak, Phil, had I been in that audience as a young man, I probably would have tuned out. I might not have listened. The idea that I could someday end up in federal prison, I could have imagined contracting the rarest disease before I could ever go to federal prison. So yeah. I tell students that you want to tune out, that's fine. I probably would have done the same thing because it's the last thing I ever could have imagined. The most amount of emails I get following a lecture on a certain subject is when a student says, I was totally going to tune out because I was going to hear some dude out of jail talking about prison and some cautionary tale. I don't do scared straight. There's not a lot of data that says scared straight even works, okay? Right. When I convey to them, I would not have listened when I was in your shoes. It wakes many of them up, and they say, that, that, that hit me, and I paid attention to every, to every moment. So, yes, it's cathartic to give back, to speak in front of hundreds of thousands of people over the years, to help them understand how one email, one text, one desire to close a deal, or if you're a people pleaser, what does that mean? A lot of people pleasers will do something wrong knowing it's wrong, but they can't say no. A lot of people pleasers in jail. Helping them understand how if you're that way in the corporate world, it could lead to loss of career, family, and in some cases, imprisonment. And number four, which is sharing how and why you'll never return to a courtroom as a defendant, that judge needs to hear this defendant say, I get it. Yes. I, I get what I did. I get how I got there. I understand what's wrong with that decision. And I can generalize that bad decision in that specific situation across the other parts of my life. I get what made me vulnerable there, I now understand how that can affect other areas of my life. I get it. I understand it. That's right. The first thing we do in any relationship is we interview and we write their story. And we get into their background and the influences that shape their character, 
the pressures they face while in business. Because if they don't show that level of awareness to a judge and that they get it, the judge may think, okay, the next time you face temptation, you're just going to give in again. You can be bought or be easily seduced again. So they've got to convey what they've learned, the motivations behind their decisions, the decisions themselves. And if they can do that, a judge is going to be more compelled to give a lower than guideline sentence. There is no question. Let me ask you this. Why did you make the decision you made? Why didn't a bell go off in your head? You think about Wolf of Wall Street. Yes, Jordan Belfort. I know him, and I talked to him after. We served time at the same prison, just at different times. I talked to him after, and I come away thinking, I have no trouble understanding how he wound up in prison. This is after the fact. I I still feel like I'm getting promoted Mm -hmm. as I'm standing there. And it's just a quality of his personality. And he's, he's actually, a, I think, a nice guy. And I, I think he's a hard worker, actually. When I talk to you, you don't come across as what I call a baiter. You don't come across as a sociopath, as a narcissistic psychopath. You don't come across as someone that seems to be a good candidate for a really bad exploitive decision of other people. What went wrong? Why did you get caught in that trap? I began to get complacent in my career. I began to get lazy, and I didn't love what I did. So I stopped paying attention uh, to details. Uh, It's unfortunate when you reach a point in your life, you tell yourself, if I make this amount of money, I'll be happy. Then you begin to make that amount of money, and you're not happy. That's a problem. So I was making the money that I thought would lead to happiness. It wasn't. And then I load the accountability, frankly, that came with being a money manager, accountable to, to clients. And I sensed or seized this opportunity to to work with this hedge fund. Something that's important to, to your point, it is not illegal to treat clients differently, though it is unethical. And when I was a young stockbroker, I had many clients who were professional baseball players. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of enamored with these clients. So I began to focus on bringing in the athletes to the detriment of some of my clients who gave me my start in the business. So then when I went from Bear Stearns to UBS and we got the seven-figure bonus, our whole book of business did not come with us. So UBS and Century City is saying, Justin, we gave you this big bonus. Where are your clients? Many of them weren't transferring. They weren't coming. I'd get on the phone with my clients and say, I sent you the transfer paperwork. Where are you? Where's your money? And they'd say, Justin, we feel like you forgot about us. You're too focused on the big leaguers and these athletes. So I felt this pressure to get my production up to a level that UBS had expected to prove worthy of the bonus that they had given me. No matter how hard I worked to try to get my clients back and grow my business, I couldn't get there. And I feared my highest value was not losing my job of not having to explain to my mom and my dad what happened, especially the trappings of success in this town, just like that, I'm 26, having to spend 15,000 bucks a month to keep the lights on, right? Mm-hmm. So I needed an opportunity to get my production up to a level where I could keep my job. And that opportunity was to work with a hedge fund manager who was breaking the law and through rationalizations and group think is a bad thing. When you get in a room with 10 guys and they're all saying things that you want to hear, nobody wants to step up to make a decision. We found a way to let the gravy train of commissions continue while trying to isolate ourselves from any fallout. In the end, you don't send a company to prison, you send individuals. And I was more heavily involved and it was easier, I'll close with, it was easier to focus on some of the good things that I was doing. All my other clients liked me. I was doing good. I was a good son. I was a volunteer. I was a Jewish big brother. It's easier to focus on the good that was easy to negate and forget about some of the bad. You know, it's interesting you say that because I've been doing a series as part of this podcast called Living by Design. And I talk about people, be who you are on purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, 
be very deliberate in what you choose, what you do, live on purpose. And one of the things I've said is that the challenge is to get out of your comfort zone. And the biggest risk people tell me that they worry about in getting out of their comfort zone is not failure, but having to maintain the success. Yes. That if they do go to the next level, if you're in a certain zone, you know, maybe you're making $100,000 a year. People that make $100,000 a year live in neighborhoods where people make a hundred grand a year. They drive cars that hundred grand people drive. Their friends make a hundred grand a year. And then if all of a sudden they're making 200 grand a year, then, well, that's a different neighborhood. Yeah. That's a different car. That's a different vacation. Those are different things. And their biggest pressure is, I got there, now I got to stay there. Yeah. And that's what worries people the most. That's their biggest anxiety, their biggest risk. Like, okay, I got there, but can I keep it up? Mm-hmm. And people feel like they're always one step ahead of getting found out. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just staying one step ahead of this masquerade. I wasn't that good. I was lucky. And now can I keep it up? Well, that's something I discussed with Freedom before the show. He was giving me a tour to a lot. I, I said, how have you been able to sustain it for such a long, long period of time? It's remarkable because it's hard work to be consistent, to be authentic. We're not talking weeks, months, or years. We're talking decades here. And you're absolutely right. You, you hit it. You said it perfectly. You know, one thing about my situation is um, I have to be transparent because I go on every day. They grade my paper and they publish the grade every day because you get yeah. ratings, you get overnights yeah. every day. Yes, they grade your paper and they publish it. So I mean, yes. you you got to do what you got to do. So any criticism that that you received by being in your position, have you learned to shake it off decades ago? And it's just it's because it's a lot has come my way by virtue of my career and the success and the attention that's come my way and. As I wrote in Lessons from Prison, misery loves company to a degree. I think in this college scandal case, I think it's unfortunate the pleasure that some people are taking and the pain of these these defendants. The word schadenfreude comes to mind. <laughs> and if you don't mind educating me for a moment, how have you learned to overcome the inevitable criticism? Well, look, you said it right. It's inevitable criticism because I take positions. A lot of people try and play it safe and just not ever take a position. They'll just introduce a topic. But... I take bold positions, and you can be talking about a certain mental illness, for example, and there are two or three legitimate schools of thought about that particular mental illness. Mm -hmm. And if I embrace one, the other two schools of thought are going to be critical. If I embrace one of those, then these two schools of thought are going to be critical. So my attitude has been enhanced by I've never been afflicted with the need to be loved by strangers. Mm -hmm. I just don't. And then my belief is you're going to get criticized no matter what you do. So you might as well do what feels authentic and right to you. And I'm never reluctant to say, I don't know if I don't know. But if I believe it, I say it, and 
If they disagreed, then okay, that's okay. What you just mentioned about authentic, I wish I didn't need a federal prison term to get there. Because I was someone in my 20s who tried to play both sides, go down the middle of the road, not offend, and I was afraid to take positions. And then in prison, when you've lost everything except your mind and my family, you begin to say, okay, I've got nothing left, really. I've got to begin to take some positions. And I'm grateful I did it. I'm grateful I now take stands, though I wish I, I did need a federal prison term to have, yeah. that, to have that awakening. But it's never too late. I'm glad I started. I I'm, was fortunate to go to prison at 33. Uh, I wasn't married. I didn't have children. That made the experience you know, easier to bear. But that was one of the biggest lessons that I've learned of authenticity and going down my old road. Even when I began to write my book, Dr. Phil, my, my family would say, like, what, you're writing a blog from prison about prison. Like, are you insane? Like, what, what, like, what are you doing? I have to go down my own road, my own path. Let's see what happens. Guards would make fun of me. They would mock me. They'd laugh at me and say, no one could ever care about a felon writing... And now many of them call me when they retire looking for work. <laughs> and it's, it's very, it's, uh, I learned a lot on the inside. Well, you know, people have different goals in life. And I have a very strange goal that I have had for a long time and I try to maintain. And that's to play the game of life without sweaty palms, without anxiety and nervousness. And that may sound like a strange goal. But that's always been a goal of mine. If you have a job without pressure, you don't really have a job. Yeah. So that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, seriously, if you have a job and and there's just no pressure on you, that's a hobby. That's not a job. There's got to be pressure. And as the old saying, pressure is privilege. I think it is a privilege to be doing something that matters. And I talk about things that matter to people who care, people that don't care about the things that I talk about don't watch. That's why you got a remote control. I mean, there mm-hmm. may be a sitcom on the next channel. If you feel like laughing, then watch that. If you feel about mm-hmm. learning something, watch this. I've been really poor, and I, I learned something that it was very important to me, and that is I can be poor. Mm-hmm. I can do poor. I've done poor. I've done what poor wants to be when poor grows up. <laughs> You can always tell if somebody's really been poor because you know, somebody will say, if you don't work, you don't eat. You say, that, that's a poor person? No, no, <laughs> no. A poor person will tell you, if you don't work and get paid today, <laughs> then you don't, don't eat. eat. That's when you're poor. Is like, I got to get paid today or I don't eat today. If you're going to pay me Friday, I have to go get a different job mm-hmm. because I can't not eat till Friday. And I've been that poor where I got to get paid today. I can't wait till Friday. Thank you. Maybe take this job in the future. But right now I got I to yes. get paid at the end of the day. I've learned. And that's what I said. I was going to say something about this university scam that really boils down to me. You said in the beginning that they didn't have faith in their kids. I'm not sure they did this for their kids. I think a lot did this for their own ego. They wanted to be able to go to the cocktail party and say, oh, my kid's going to Harvard or my kid's going to Yale. They're wearing that like jewelry because I've said I think overindulgence is really cheating a child because I think the way you learn about yourself, whether you're 5, 6, 16, 26, 36, is by watching what you do in life. And if you overcome certain things, then you make attributions to yourself. You went to prison at 33. Yes. You survived that. You overcame that. 
And I promise you, at some level, you made a self-attribution where you said, I can do that. I did it. I faced it. I overcame it. And I actually turned it into something that is a livelihood and helping other people at the same time. You watched yourself do that, and it became part of who you are. It's just like when I say I can do poor. I've seen me be poor, and I realize I can do it. Mm-hmm. So I've learned that about myself. That's how kids, they go to school that first day. They walk in when mom pulls away. <laughs> and That was my first day. I was basically thrown out of the car. <laughs> yeah. But you do. You walk through those big metal doors, and you go in there by yourself, and you go, wow, I did that. Yeah. I went to school without mom. Yes. I went to class. I came back out. I did that. That's how kids learn about themselves, through attribution. And these parents that have done this for these kids, no matter whether those kids were in on it or not, at some level, they damn well know they backed into that school. Mm-hmm. So they don't have the pride of saying, I worked my way into this university. I earned it. I own it. I can be proud of it. They know somehow or another they backed in there. They cheated them out of that. I agree, and it would impact them for the rest of their life. Yeah. And they'd know that much of what would come as a result of that degree would not be earned, and that has its own sentence. And I, I went to public schools all my life, and I listen, I think education is great. I think everybody should get all they can get. But the correlation with success is between intelligence and success, not education mm-hmm. and success. Mm-hmm. There's no question you make more money with a college degree throughout your life than without it. But actually, the correlation for big-time success is between IQ and success, not education and success. Mm-hmm. That's probably because sales and entrepreneurship and that sort of thing is where a lot of money is made, so probably right. it averages out. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Now, there's no saying in Texas, for every rat you see, there's 50 you don't. Mm-hmm. 50 people have been indicted. Do you think that's the bottom? There will be more. There's got to be. It. I mean, it, it would almost, I've used the word logic and illogical several times in our podcast. It's illogical to think that it's just 50 people. And one of the first questions the government asks you when they bring you in, they'll say, hello, um, thanks for coming is there anything you'd like to tell us? <laughs> okay, and if the answer is yes, I'd like to shed some light on some additional criminal conduct, they're using one of the, their best tools, which is cooperation to get a, a shorter prison term. I can assure you, one of the first questions was, thank you for coming. Is there anything you'd like to tell us? So to think that it's only 50 is foolish. There will be more. The question is, yeah, how many more? And how long will this potentially go on? And where does it you know, where does it stop? You talk earlier about the prosecutors at some point becoming a defense attorney. I mentioned David Willingham, the U.S. attorney that indicted me, who was a phenomenal defense attorney. When he became a defense attorney on his bio, one of the first things listed was the case against me. <laughs> okay, So they're going to use these convictions to advance yep. their, which they're supposed to do, advance their career when they... They're going to say, I can justify $1,500 an hour to look at what I did here. So, you know, there's there has to be more. And some of those prosecutors may jump sooner rather than later. 
in my case, that actually happened with David. Before I was even sentenced, he became a defense attorney. A new U.S. attorney came on board and said, he's phenomenal. But I'll tell you, the first letter I received out of prison was from David Willingham congratulating me on my book. He read it and wishing me a great deal of success moving forward. And we've spoken over the years. It was very kind of him to do that. It really was. What should these people expect that do go to prison? What are they going to find when they get in there? What they're going to find is it's not as bad as they thought. Prison is very much sensationalized on TV. However, it is still a federal prison. It's not a country club. I frequently hear these people are going to white-collar country clubs. Ain't the case. 10% of the defendants there or prisoners will be white collar. The reality is they're stepping into an environment where people have lived for 1, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. My business partner, Michael Santos, was inside for 22 years when I shook his hand. He was in the penitentiary, worked his way down to a camp for a nonviolent drug crime. So there's a social order that exists. So I encourage defendants to be quiet, to watch, to listen, to not try to manipulate uh, their environment. It's a warped culture of confinement. They need to know the rules. They need to avoid staff. Celebrities have a tougher time because we, too, to a degree, we worship celebrity in this country. So you can expect that to be the same thing in prison. So they have to understand the rules of prison, both written and unwritten, and recognize their job is to not make matters worse. And of course, some people say to me, Justin, do you think I'm stupid? How can matters be made worse? And I say, let me tell you, I just got a call from a woman whose husband got caught using an iPhone in prison or got caught smoking a joint. And now he's in the hole and he's getting transferred to higher security prison and he's getting new charges. Yes, things can get worse. You can't do anything great. You can't write a blog. You can't write a book. You can't build a new career as I and our clients do. If you're associating with the wrong people, if you're drowning in misery and sorrow, if you're communicating with guards and if you're behaving foolishly. So we spend a lot of time on prison adjustment, creating your routine. And that should include laying low, waking early, going to bed early, avoiding the TV room in the evenings where the gambling and the, the, the weight of the day comes undone, the gambling and the TV the hustling, if they're going to do anything great, they've got to ensure that their routine is rooted in the reality that this is harder on their family and they can never complain because people have had it worse. That helped me through prison. Perspective helps my clients. You look at people as a Jew, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning heavily impacted me in prison. I'm in prison reading his book thinking this man who's watching his family summarily get executed in the concentration camps is finding value in the blue sunset. My gosh, how can a man, how does a man like that even exist? I can get through my time in federal prison. So finding perspective and showing immense gratitude for those who have stood by us, proving worthy of that love and support. If they can focus on that, the term will be a breeze. Why do you say avoid the guards? Let's just say you're speaking to a guard for 20 minutes. And 20 minutes later, that guard is searching somebody's locker and they pull something out. It's very easy for another prisoner to surmise and say, wasn't that guard just talking to that prisoner and now that guy's locker got searched? Boom. Just like that. So to the degree that you can avoid guards or staff, you be respectful. If they open the door, you say thank you and vice versa. But you want to lay low. That's why I favor bigger federal prisons. It's easier to get off the grid and lay low. So that is generally why I would say a lot of prisoners suffer from Stockholm Syndrome, where they more easily identify with those holding them captive, and it can be off-putting. There are informants in prison who are looking for more commissary, more halfway house time, more phone privileges, and that's why coach clients say, be careful before you form friendships. You've just gotten there. You don't know how they behave. You don't know what their routines are like. It involves understanding your tendencies. If you're an If you're an extrovert by nature and you like to be around people, it may be hard to spend six hours alone in the prison library. But if your goal is truly to get home unscathed with your dignity intact, you're going to do it. The question is, will you do it? Mm -hmm. So understanding the tendencies that we have as humans was integral to my prison term. I had to know why I did it. 
My clients need to know why they've done it, and they need to learn and educate themselves and avoid drama. And why do you say avoid the television room at night? So there are some men that rule the, the television room like it's their fiefdom, okay? They're in there all day. You, I, the, the fights I saw in prison were somebody changing the channel. Uh, actually, one of them was the, the, when I watched the Masters in prison, and, you know, Tiger was it was a big deal, right? And changed the channel, and a fight broke out, and you don't have any respect. So if you're going to watch TV, be in the back, don't change the channel, lay low. But some men, they're in there literally all day there can be very little accountability in these federal prisons so for that reason that's where the gambling you know there's playoff time in basketball the games are on tnt i can assure you and there's gambling going on and there's money changing hands and it can get very competitive and aggressive and for that reason i'd encourage them to avoid the tv room just like i'd encourage them to avoid recreational activities Healthcare in prison isn't to the degree that i think it should be and further and my wife occasionally says this sounds a little off-putting, but I'll say it anyway, to your point of not being for everyone in, in this instance, there's softball five nights a week in prison. And men learned that I played baseball at USC. I wrote about it in a blog, and a wife sent my blog to another prisoner. And he said, hey, come and play softball with us. And I said, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. Come and play softball with us. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Then finally, after about three months, I said, bud, thank you for the invitation. I've ruined my reputation. I've destroyed my parents. I've lost everything. I'm a convicted felon. The economy is imploding. I'm going home in six months. I'm scared to death about what I'm going to do. I cannot play softball because I'm not going to be a professional softball player upon my release. Please understand and stop asking me. So prisoners need to understand the experience is going to end. The 50 defendants in this case, they're going to be on the other side and say, it's over. Wow. Then they're going to look back and they've either done it well or a lot of regrets or they've done it poorly. So for me, avoiding recreational activities, avoiding the guards, understanding your tendencies was a critical component of my prison term, and it's something that we coach our clients aggressively. I tell people, don't pay me to learn how to shop in the commissary. It's pretty easy. Check off what you want. They're going to give it to you. Not hard. What we do is help clients develop a plan that we reverse engineer their plan. Where do you want to be in five years? And we begin to work their way back, and that helps them understand where they have to be tomorrow. And that's a life that I've lived, and I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about it. So why tell them not to do recreational activities? What's the downside? Two parts. One, if you get hurt, you'll never be the same. You, you tear don't an AC get good fixing in there. You got that right. Okay, that is correct. And two, I understand the idea of doing it to pass the time. And I ran, I became a long distance runner in prison, but I ran at my own pace around that dusty dirt track. If you get hurt, you'll never be the same. And I don't think it's good to be beholden to anything or anyone in prison. And if you're playing softball, you're beholden to practices twice a week for three hours and then a game on Saturday. And in my opinion, I was rigid. I'll admit my routine was not for everyone, but I knew what I was coming home to, nothing other than the love of my family. And I was not going to encumber them any further. So should I allocate 10 hours a week to softball? Or should I allocate it to studying philosophy and ethics and writing my memoir and studying and mastering Bureau of Prisons policy? That was a better use of my time. And my routine was not for everyone. And some mm -hmm. clients say that to me. I say, as long as you know the pros and cons of every action, I've done my job. Yeah, That worked best for me and it works for a number of our clients. Let's talk about that for a minute. So what's next for you? We've been talking about what you're doing now. You're working with white-collar criminals and some of them in this university scam. We know what you're telling them. What's next for you? What are you working on now? 
I'm continuing to work on being a better husband and father. I have two young children, a four-year-old daughter, Alyssa, and a 10-month-old son, Jason. I'm so grateful to have children. I never thought it would happen as a result of my experience. I wasn't ready when I came home. Professionally, I've just completed my third book, a very small book I call Living Deliberately, that talks about how I was able to transform my life because I focus not on Justin and how can I only help myself by creating goodwill and value. The more goodwill and value I put into the marketplace, the more it's ever helped me. So the book is written for small business owners, for defendants who need to find a new line of work, to help them understand, hey, I, need to, I know you need to get back on track, you have to develop a skill set and provide value. And you talk about using digital marketing in yes. that regard because we're in a different day and age yes. now. That, that, so. that transformed it for me. I, the first lesson I ever learned as a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch out of USC was, the guy in here who knows the most ain't going to make the most. It's the guy that can sell it the best. So for a lot of years, I thought I was best in class at what I did. And But if, if nobody knew, what did it matter? So by leveraging blogs and YouTube videos and providing value, creating content that helped people, hundreds and then thousands of, of people reached out to us and were in a position to educate and help others. It's the attention that's come through my work from that Washington Post article and people reaching out maybe you know for, for movies and TV shows. It's a lot for me to take because actually a benefit of my prison term was better understanding my tendencies. And the reality is I'm kind of an introverted heart. So some parts of this, I don't want to say it's uncomfortable for me, but the attention is a little foreign for me. But I figure if I continue to tell the truth and if I'm authentic and I provide goodwill and value and help people, I have nothing to be afraid of. And going to prison is liberating because I frequently tell myself before I address thousands of people, before I go on TV, hey, if it doesn't go bad, they can't send me back to prison. <laughs> it's very liberating. How's business? It's been steady and growing. Sadly. <laughs> yes, I joke that I'm in a, a spot where I hope nobody has to retain me, but if they do, we're here to help. What's interesting is how many non-prison-related people who read my books and, and hear me speak reach out and they have nothing to do with prison and I'm working with them, helping them with their business and digital marketing and writing their memoir and developing online courses. And it's incredible how many people I'm working with right now who have no involvement in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Well, you're kind of a life coach, essentially. And I always say the difference between a goal and a dream is a timeline mm -hmm. and accountability. Yes. And you're setting people up with Yes. Life plans and a timeline with steps to get where they're going, and that means a lot. Well, listen, we've been talking to Justin Paperni, and he is the co-founder of White Collar Advice, and I'm going to put a link to that up on our website. I'm also going to put a link to that on drphil.com so you can find it if you need it. And if you need it, you need to contact early, not late. Because once you do, you're going to say, I wish I'd have done this yesterday. Even if you do it, as soon as you hear this, you're going to wish you had done it yesterday. But it's white-collar advice, and he's got a lot of videos on the Internet talking about different things, different aspects, and they're good. They're insightful. He talks fast, mm -hmm. uh, so you're going to listen to him a couple of times, but you'll get a lot out of it. He wrote a book called Lessons from Prison, and there's a lot of insight there. His next book was Ethics in Motion, and it's a case studies book. Actually, I'm proud to report that I give away lessons from prison for free. So if anyone goes to whitecollaradvice.com, they can opt in and get the book for free, and in about four minutes, they'll have the book delivered to them. I proudly give away thousands of copies a year, and anyone who has interest in the book, all they have to do is invest the time to read it. If they do, they'll be further along. Okay, great. And this one they can get on Amazon.com? Ethics or in Motion, yes. Your 
next book that is coming out is Living Deliberately, and that'll be out when? Next month. We've already finished the, the digital version of it. Now we're, um, my wife, Sandra, is actually helping me with the, the, the cover. <laughs> okay. So I'm working on you know, endorsements. I'm working on a little foreword, and I expect the book to be out next month. It's a smaller book, but one that chronicles how through goodwill and creating good content, you can really grow your business and, and do more good than you ever could have imagined. Well, based on everything I know, it will be good. So I look forward to it coming out and uh, I'll read it when it does. Thank you so much for talking about all this. If people that have heard this and they're in a pickle or they've got a family member or a loved one in a pickle and this doesn't get them to get real and out of denial, I don't know what else we can say. I would agree with that. Justin, thank you. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you would like to watch the video of this entire interview, please go to Dr. Phil's YouTube channel and subscribe. It's free, and you will find this interview and a whole lot more.